Isaiah 62 describes a time in Israel's history long before Jesus was born. A national moment of great tragedy with a prophecy of great hope for the future. The nation that had been given the promised land, a fertile land flowing with milk and honey, a land to graze their animals and grow their vines and their crops, a land to raise their children and to enjoy their grandchildren, that nation had lost everything. A divided people, they had been conquered and destroyed. Their land had turned into a barren wilderness and their people carried off into slavery in Babylon. Forsaken by their God, desolate, given to destruction. But now the prophet Isaiah is speaking of a new day when the city and temple of Jerusalem built on Mount Zion would be rebuilt and the land returned to its fertility. And the city, Zion, would become the city of righteousness for all the world to see and its salvation will be known by all people. For no longer will it be called forsaken and deserted. Now it would be called Hepzibah and Beulah. Hands up any Hepzibahs we have here or any Beulahs? Christians used to call their daughters Hepzibah and Beulah. They're lovely names. I've run out of grandchildren. But you might consider it when you're having your suggestions. I don't think it'll be warmly received much today. But Hepzibah and Beulah are two terrific Christian names because what do they mean? They're just Hebrew words. And they mean my delight is in her. And they mean married. For the Lord delights in her and her land will be married. Zion will move from God forsaken to God's delight and from desolate to married. A wedding and a marriage is one of the Bible's descriptions of the good life. The opposite of married is desolate. It's the age of salvation and blessing. It's the moment of victory and restoration. For the image that is used, the image of the bridegroom's joy in his bride, of her satisfaction of being married, is one that is built into the very fabric of our creation and instantly recognised by all people. Uh, you can go for a generation like Miss Gillard and her friends, bad-mouthing the patriarchal slavery of misogynistic marriage, rejecting the antiquated wedding ceremony, just living with their partners, saying of weddings, what on earth would I want to do that for? But one look at the smile on a bridegroom's face, one peep behind the veil even of the pleasure in a bride's eyes and all those arguments of that generation disappear into the ether. Having waited for months for the wedding day to come and surrounded by family and by friends, making public their private promises to each other about their future life together, as the congregation prays for them, and praise for their children not yet born. This is a supreme moment of joy and delight 
and pleasure and satisfaction and excitement and exquisite exaltation, not just for them, but for the whole community. It's a fun day of all fun days when our friends gather to be married together. It makes nonsense of the 1960s feminist critique of weddings. Weddings and marriage are built into our very creation and are used by God to symbolise the very nature of our relationship with him and with Christ. It's built into our very creation, which explains why we, are all, we all recognise their joy and their desire for the good life of marriage and for family that the wedding expresses. And it's symbolising our relationship with God and secondly, our future with Christ. It means that marriage expresses the very best that life has to offer in our relationship with our Creator and our Saviour. When John came to, be to describe the vision of heaven in Revelation chapter 21, it was essentially a description of a relationship that we are going to have with God and Christ. The holy city, the new Jerusalem, comes down from heaven, but it comes down as a bride prepared for her husband. And the voice declares, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. For heaven is found in our relationships, in our friendship, in our love, our relationship with our God. And later the angel shows him the bride, the wife of the Lamb, which is the glorious city of God, the city without a temple, because the temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And as citizens of heaven, we have free, permanent, constant, direct personal relationship with the God of heaven, with the King of heaven, with the Lamb himself. Here at a wedding, in the handsome young man's delight, in the beautiful young woman's pleasure, is expressed the very nature of our creation and the joy of our eternity. Don't miss out on weddings, friend. Do turn up to them. When you see one going, pop in, because it's just a little sign of who we are as creatures and what we will be in eternity. The feminists cannot ultimately overcome the reality of our creation, for they will have to deny the reality of the very human joy we see in the face of the bride and the groom, the joy we see in the face of every bride and every groom. They cannot ultimately overcome the reality of our creation, for they'll have to deny the reality of families joining together and creating new families and sharing in the joy of the groom and the bride and of the birth of the children and the grandchildren and the great-grandchildren. 
At this point, you see, the homosexual community is absolutely right, as the feminists are completely wrong. The acceptance of their sexual behaviour, the homosexual sexual behaviour, will never find approval as long as they cannot share the family joy of being a groom and a bride, committing themselves in marriage in a public wedding. They're right in their desire to have marriage and weddings. Yet, the marriage of heaven that we read in the book of Revelation, that every wedding symbolise, is one of righteousness and holiness. A city which excludes murderers and sexually immoral, the sorcerers, idolaters and liars. A city saved from God's wrath on their sinfulness, transformed to be the holy city of God. A city of people reborn to live God's way, not their way. As his people, not their own people. Forgiven through the Lamb, the groom's sacrificial death, reborn and sanctified by the Holy Spirit. There is no point having a wedding here that doesn't symbolise that great wedding. Isaiah says, when God looks at the people he has saved, looks at the redeemed city, the crown of beauty, the royal diadem in his hand, he calls her Hepzibah and Beulah. My delight is in her. She is married. For he, God himself, delights in us. Ponder that, friends. Just ponder it for a minute. You know what it is, if you've ever been in love at all, to find delight in the other person. God delights in us. That's an extraordinary idea. The holy and almighty God himself finds his joy in us, frail, failures and sinful people that we are. As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you, says Isaiah 62.5. God rejoices in me? Every time you see a bridegroom smile, every time you see his joy and his delight, every time you see him steal another glimpse of his bride and love fulfills his face, remember, God delights in you like that. As a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall God rejoice over you. That's an astonishing sentence, isn't it? And every time you see a bride smile, every time you see her joy and her delight, every time you see her steal another loving glimpse of her groom, remember your salvation. You shall no longer be called forsaken, and your land shall no longer be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. 
For the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. You shall rejoice because you are called married. Isaiah 62 is an extraordinary passage to choose for a wedding sermon, isn't it? But that's what the groom and the bride gave me, and so that's the sermon I preached. They were right to choose it. Don't want to criticise your choice, but it's an infinitely more interesting passage than 1 Corinthians 13. <laughs> it really is a passage about... But it's also extraordinary because a previous generation wouldn't need that passage. For no one ever despised marriage or weddings. It's that we've moved so far culturally that this passage has a new relevance for us. But turn in your Bibles to a wedding psalm, a great wedding psalm, Psalm 45. Psalm 45. My heart overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verse to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore God has blessed you forever. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and alloys and cassia. From ivory palaces stringed instruments make you glad. Daughters of kings are among your ladies of honour. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. Hear, O daughter, and consider. Incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favour with gifts, the riches of the people. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes interwoven with gold. In many coloured robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. With joy and gladness they are led along as they enter the palace of the king. In place of your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations and therefore nations will praise you forever and ever. Now, like all weddings, this psalm is about an end, verse 10, and a beginning, verse 16. Hear, O daughter, and consider, incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. There's an end. You're leaving that generation. And verse 16, in place of your fathers shall be your sons, and you'll make them princes of all the earth. And there's the beginning, the new family that is coming. For marriage is about the extension of families. 
leaving mother and father, cleaving to the spouse, that out of the unity of the couple, the man and the woman, humanity is increased to fill the earth and to subdue it as the very image of God. It's not two humanities, but one humanity that God created in his image, united by God to reproduce godly offspring. So the king is praised in verses 1 and 2. He's called the most handsome of men. It may be a conventional kind of flattery of the king, but verse 6, it's Hebrew flattery. It's about truth and meekness. Uh, verse 4, rather, it's about truth and meekness and righteousness. That's very Jewish, that's very Old Testament kind of flattery. Verses 6 to 9 introduces the kingship theme, the throne, the scepter, anointed, which means crowned, uh, means Messiah, means the Christ, palaces. Because he's more than the king, he's actually called God. This is one of the Old Testament passages where a man is called God. And Hebrews chapter 1 quotes that verse to remind us of the Lord Jesus Christ actually being the fulfilment of this Psalm 45. And beside him stands the Queen. Verses 10 to 15 describes the royal wedding, addresses the Queen and the bride in her glory, leave your family behind. He desires your beauty and you are to bow to him. Now, that's politically incorrect, isn't it? How politically incorrect can you be that the bride should bow to her husband? But as the queen, she, the richest of people will seek your favour, the people entire. And she is glorious as she's led to the king with her bridesmaids, the virgins, as they're called. And then verses 16 to 17, the psalmist once more addresses the king. His new glories are his sons, the princes in all the earth, and in his name over time and place, remembered in all generations, praised for all nations. You see, it is to the Messiah, not to angels, that God inspired this psalm. For he is the one whose throne is forever and ever, whom God anointed with the oil of gladness. He is the glorious one, awaiting his bride, which when we come to meet the Lord Jesus Christ and read our New Testaments, we discover the bride is the church. So he's awaiting for his bride, the church, to come, betrothed to her by the apostolic preaching of the gospel, fulfilling God's mystery, his secret purpose in creating the bride in creation and presenting her pure and spotless to himself, preparing the bride with the pure linen of the righteous acts of Revelation 19, the righteous acts of the saints coming who are adorned for her husband, the city of God, the holy city of God coming down out of heaven. For as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32, this mystery is profound. For Paul calls the passage of Genesis, which sets out marriage, as a great profound mystery. What is the mystery? A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This is a great mystery, says Paul. Now, I'm going to do a little bit of correction of our translations tonight. 
the second talk more than the first, but this is one of those little corrections. The word mystery is not the word mystery. The trouble is, you see, sometimes translators don't translate. What they do is they just turn the Greek letters into English word letters. So there's a Greek word called mysterion, and they turn it into English letters. Mystery. The trouble is the word mystery doesn't mean the same thing as the word mysterion meant. The word mysterion meant secret. The word mystery means deep puzzling, something that you can't fathom, that is beyond, that is supernatural and otherworldly. Other right? A, a mystery novel is not just a secret novel. A secret is a secret. I have a secret uh, in my right hand pocket of this pair of trousers. I have something that you don't know what it is, do you? It's a secret. It's just here. If I pulled it out, I could show it to you. But then it wouldn't be a secret anymore, so I'm leaving it in my pocket. It's not mysterious. It's actually very simple. It's, it's so simple that when I pulled it out, you say, oh, fancy, uh, you know, boring, or, or whatever. Because, well, it's just what people have in their right-hand pocket. It's a nothing. But it's a secret as long as it's hidden. God has a hidden secret from the beginning. And his hidden secret from the beginning is the uniting of the Jews and the Greeks into one. That we see here in the creation of marriage. For it was God's plan from the beginning to create one humanity. Out of the two becoming one is the symbol of God's plan of one humanity. Jew, Greek, male, female, slave, free, all one in Christ Jesus. His aim was to create one, humanity. And so come back to Genesis and see about marriage. For this is where Jesus points when he is put to the test about marriage. He combines chapters 1 and chapter 2. In chapter 1, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Two things I want to draw from that verse. Firstly, is the unity of humanity. The creation is of man, not men. Both man and woman together create man or as we would say in modern English, created humanity. And we'd say if we're talking in political correct English, humankind, which is an appalling world that someone made up and I wish they wouldn't. Humanity has been around for a long time, it's a lovely word, and it's much more poetic than humankind, which is just a political correct nonsense word. Humanity is what we have and there's one of us, and only one of us. And that was God's aim from the beginning. The second is the function, if not the nature of the image of God. It's to be fruitful, to multiply, fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over all the creatures. That is, part and parcel of the creation mandate is reproduction. Part and parcel of our creation is reproduction. When placed in the garden alone, it was not good for man to be alone. He needed a helper fit for him to, in his work of dominion, tilling and keeping the garden. 
But we know from chapter 1, his dominion is also to be fruitful, multiply and fill the earth. And in that regard, the woman of the same flesh and bone is at last the unique, the only perfect helper for him. For as soon as created, as soon as God created the woman for the man and brought the woman to the man, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she shall be called woman for she's drawn out of man. Soon as that happened, they immediately get out the shovels and the hose and the hoses and the wheelbarrows and the trowels and he sets her to work in the garden. Is not how the rest of the chapter finishes, is it? That's not what happens. As soon as she is created, they are cast into the context of family life. He leaves his parents to be united to his wife and they are naked and without shame. Just realise the situation in which you're reading. Who were his parents that he left? Didn't have any. I mean, the way we'll be able to recognise Adam in heaven is he's the one without a navel. (laughs) The only man who didn't go through the birth process at all, isn't he? And so... It's not about Adam and Eve. It's about humanity. That God has created the woman that the man may be united with her in creating the next generation and the next generation and the next generation. Now, I don't want to be heard as saying that the only function of women is to have babies. She is human in every sense of the word, created in the image of God as ruling the world with her husband. And I know we're on a topic with enormous hurt and emotional sensitivity that I can't discuss publicly without you listening graciously to me. Be generous, my dear listeners. Be generous. I can't say it all in great detail and have you finished this evening. There are many, many individual stories here tonight, I'm sure, of hurt and pain and suffering in this kind of area of life. And I don't want to add to that suffering by what I'm saying. But at the same time, we mustn't ignore having babies as if babies were unimportant in the creation of women or unimportant in the life and purposes of God for women. As if creating a second man would have just been as good as creating the woman. A second man would not have been as good. A second man could not have been as good for then God would have created two humanities Man one, man two, who could not be united as one humanity and would not reproduce that continued one humanity. What God was creating was one huge, expanding web of relationships, ever connecting more and more people into this fabric, into this web, as men and women leave their parents and join with other families to produce yet another generation with the whole complexities of multiple great-great-grandparents and cousins and sisters and aunts and everything tied together. 
so that there is this huge one expanding web of humanity the reason tomorrow night we're dealing with divorce and on church on Saturday night Sunday morning we deal with death is because death and divorce are the tears in the web and instead of the web holding firm people are being ripped apart that the damage is done in every death of any individual and in any divorce of any family it's not just the husband and wife it's the uncles and the nephews and the aunties and the nieces and the cousins and the grandchildren and the everybody the, the human web is being weakened each time it's important to face up to one of the great problems of feminism that childlessness can be one of the great hurts for women there's a plethora of articles about childlessness and I know that not every woman wants to be a mother and I don't have a problem with that at all but for many women medically not being able to have a child is extremely painful and has led many to extraordinary lengths and costs and pain in, effort to, in efforts to have a child and for many other women socially childlessness is painful not having a husband and so not being able to have a child is very hurtful and again I've seen the extraordinary lengths that some women have gone to in order to be able to have a husband in order to be able to have the child and for many women personally it is painful as in later life they regret their choices often not realizing they were making the choice in their early 20s and the like as they pursued their goals until it was too late and for them it has become a personal pain of great difficulty there's also some connection between childless men and depression that I have read of though I haven't read much about it almost nothing and it's 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 a matter beyond my knowledge and discussion but I just know from the literature that it is there our detachment of sex from reproduction has been a fundamental mistake for we are creating we are created sexually for reproduction now I'm not going down the line of opposing all contraceptives but separating the two activities completely sex and reproduction has led to all manner of difficulties not the least leading to the whole question of homosexual marriage for some women the problem is not so much 30 and still single but the much more painful 40 and still childless but yet Ephesians talks of the unity of a man and a woman in the image of God as referring to Christ and the church 
For though we're created to reproduce, filling the world with one humanity created in God's image, yet Christ is the image of the invisible God. And his marriage to his people is the ultimate unity that God has planned. So I want to draw your attention to a very strange, strange to our ears, passage, verse in particular, in Luke's Gospel, where Jesus says they cannot die anymore. So turn with me to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Matthew, Mark, Luke... John jumped on a horse, couldn't stay on. You got it there, Luke 20. Now I'm starting from verse 27. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny there is a resurrection, and they asked him a question saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children, and the second and the third took her, and likewise all seven left no children and died. Afterwards the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die any more, because they are equal to angels and sons of God, being the sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he called the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now he's not the God of the dead, but the living, for all live to him. And then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well. And they no longer dared to ask him any question. First notice the question, uh, the whole issue of Leverite marriage, as it's called. It's such a strange concept to our ears, isn't it? Uh, it even seems to allow, if not command, polygamy. Uh, if you die, and you have brothers and you don't have any children, then your wife is to marry your brother and your brother is to give you children because the children born of that marriage are in your name because the brother is acting for you in this regard. And so this woman, who obviously had terrible cooking habits, saw seven men die, all brothers, and still had no children at the end of it. She dies. Whose, whose wife is she? It again, notice, links sex with children and the importance of reproduction, but there is an importance in Israel that may be different for us. See, the great blessing of the psalmist of having your children's children around your feet in the promised land meant that you were cut off from God and from Israel and from the promised land if you died childless. When we talk of marriage... We do have to include in our thinking what Leverite marriage is saying to our attitudes concerning sex and faithfulness, reproduction and filling the land. Although, of course, the promised land was different to Singapore. In my notes it has to Australia, but I'll say Singapore. (laughs) However, secondly, look at Jesus' statement in verse 34. 
Jesus said to them, the sons of this age are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to the age, that age and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot die anymore. Here he sees marriage as an activity of creation, not an activity of the resurrection age. And the reason he gives in verse 36 is because they cannot die anymore. The age of exclusive partnering in order to have children belongs to this created order. Multiply, fill the earth. Especially under the sentence of death where we have to keep on multiplying to fill the earth. But it doesn't belong to the resurrection age. For there's no more death there. And so we aren't there to populate heaven. We aren't there to populate the universe by reproduction. That reproductive part of our created being is over and done with. It's an important insight for lots of reasons. Firstly, because our marriage is ultimately our union with Christ, our husband, in the age to come, rather than our marriage here in this world, which symbolises that marriage. Secondly, because contrary to much recent emphasis, there's a profound disjunction between this world and the world to come. I mean, there is a continuity in the resurrection. I will be me, you will be you. In the resurrection, we will have bodily resurrected existence. But there's also a profound disjunction between one age and the other. That means our activities here may be very different to our activities there. There's a new creation that operates differently and will change us into we don't exactly know what. We're warned in 1 Corinthians 15 not to ask what kind of bodies we will have in that age. They'll be appropriate for the new creation. They'll be glorious like our Saviour. They will not, cannot die, according to this passage, and they will not marry or reproduce, because that's no longer necessary. So as the materialist mustn't find his meaning in his possessions, and a man mustn't find his meaning in his work, so the couple mustn't find their meaning in their marriage and children. And a woman mustn't find her meaning in her children. For though marriage is part of our meaning in creation, this creation is passing away, as it always was destined to do. And our meaning is to be found in the age to come, not in this age. It's to be found in heaven, not on earth. Jesus challenged, you see, in the Sermon on the Mount about treasures on earth and treasures in heaven. Where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Can apply to marriage and children, as it does to money and possessions. For our earthly marriages and sexual relations are part of the created order we are in, not the resurrection order we are going to. There, there is the only one marriage, that is between the Lamb and the Church. All of which introduces us 
to point six, the uxorious minister. I love the word uxorious. I discovered it when I was about 20 and have been using it freely ever since. It hasn't quite caught on. I discovered it when I was reading the history of Henry VIII. For it means being overly fond of one's wife. Which I thought was a fairly strange thing for you to say about Henry VIII. I would have thought you could say he was over fond of having wives, seeing he had so many, but he wasn't so fond of them, seeing he dispatched so many of them as well. But in his early years, he was completely besotted by his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and was so besotted by her that he was called Euxorius. Never left her alone. Totally besotted by her was he. And it struck me at that time that not Henry of all people could be accused of it, but what struck me was that there was such a possibility. How could someone be over fond of their wife? I didn't know that was, an, that was an alternative that was available to you. And so I guess that's why it's a word that hasn't caught on, because most people don't think that that could be possible, especially wives. <laughs> However, there is a sinfulness when we worship my wife in place of worshipping Christ. When I live for her rather than for him, when I obey her rather than him, when I worship her instead of worshipping Christ, or I worship my wife as Christ, or when I am careless, not loving my wife in the same way in which Christ loved his bride and laid down his life for her. There is a sinfulness that is available in our relationships within marriage, which is important to understand. Now, I picked the word uxorious because I don't know of the alternative, androriousness or something, I presume it would be, but I've never found anywhere a use of a word which means being over fond of one's husband. <laughs> There's a certain impossibility in this. <laughs> For most women are such realists that they would never be sucked into such a nonsense. <laughs> but there is, as I will spell out in the next session, a thing called mariolatry, which is mariolatry with an extra R, where the very meaning of life is marriage. And it's not, unless you're talking of the marriage with Christ in heaven. We can be overly committed. That is, within the Bible, marriage is a matter of great wisdom. The Bible is very pro-marriage. 
That wonderful Ecclesiastes passage, you know, where the twofold cord is not easily broken, the threefold cord is even stronger. Why? The two being one and working with each other, the Bible is full of positivity about marriage. But the Bible has also got its anti-marriage sections. Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And look there at verse 32. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire and control, as discerned in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, who will do so well. Why am I feeling like I'm reading the wrong passage? Because I am, that's why. Why didn't you call out? Verse 32, I've got it now. It's very small numbers in my Bible. Very old, weak eyes. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. The Bible has also a concern about the worries of this world and how they distract us from pleasing the Lord. And in particular, the worries that come to married people. And the distraction that comes in marriage in the service of the Lord. Now all this passage is coloured by his concern about a present distress. But this passage is what we're going to look at in the next section on the subject of singleness. We've dealt with marriage, we move on to singleness, 